Well, it's great to have you with us here this morning, and uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time in Scripture with you. If you'll take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew is uh, one of the biographies about Jesus. It's the first book in the New Testament, so it's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, and uh, we'll be looking at that in just a few minutes while you're... Um, and if you don't own a Bible, you'll find this one in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have one to bring. Um, grab that one and take it home. Literally, take that Bible home as our gift to you today. We'd be honored if you would do that. We'd be glad if you'd have that Bible in your home and use it on a regular basis. So uh, while you're turning to Matthew 23, just an acknowledgement that uh, throughout the last uh, few weeks, I've been on the road more than is customary, more than perhaps might even been uh, wanted. I've been gone a lot. A lot of ministry events that needed my attention in various places around the country, and I've spent a lot of time on planes, um, more so than what I would normally experience as um, a local pastor in the role I have here. And uh, so consequently, I've been, you know, there's all that extra time on the plane, what are you going to do? I've been reading this really long book, it's 700 pages long, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's a book on the, the, um, the founding of Australia. Many of you know that I was born and raised there till I was 11, so, and I've got, you know, history that goes way back there. And so, Australia was founded by convicts. Perhaps you're aware of that. Criminals, petty thieves founded Australia. Here's how that happened. Up until the War of Independence here in the United States, it was customary for Britain to send criminals here. Namely, they'd keep them in jails in Great Britain, but every now and then they'd put a shipload of prisoners together and send them to America, to North America, to the Canadians, the Americans say, you guys take care of these scum. We don't want to deal with them, is basically how they used to think. Well, you had that mixing with the people who were coming to the US and Canada, and it was, it was all kind of like half and half, or more than most people were coming were free, but there were these criminals that showed up here every now and then. Well, when, after the War of Independence, those jails were no longer available to the Brits, and so they had nowhere to skim off their scum, if you will, and so that's good language. I just thought of that right now. But... Um, so the, the jails got fuller and fuller till the late 1770s, it was chaos in the jails. And they cast about and said, where can we send people we don't want? Well, Captain Cook had discovered Australia in 1770. And so they said, well, nobody's ever been back there. Let's send all those people down there. And so in the late 1770s, a flotilla of 11 ships left Britain full of convicts. And they arrived eventually in what we would today call Sydney Harbor, and they began Australia. And from the late 1770s through to about 1850, literally thousands upon thousands of people were sent to Australia and that's how Australia was populated. Not many free people went to Australia because it was known as a jail. So those of us who are raised in Australia, we come from bad stock. As a matter of fact, here in the U.S., you know, it's very, it's, it's kind of a point of family pride if you can trace your lineage back to the Mayflower. In Australia, it's a big point of pride if you can trace your lineage all the way back to the original convicts. And um, my family goes way back there. I don't know how bad we really are. But it's, in reading this book, it's helped me understand a little bit more of um, every time we visit the family and we're home in Australia, there's always this really profound sense of this ethos that's nationwide that you just get it. No one is gonna tell me what to do. 
because part of our history is we were, I mean, if you were a petty thief, you were shipped off to Australia for seven to 14 years with the assumption you wouldn't live through it so you would never get back. So, um, no, but then I'm thinking, well, no one's gonna tell me what to do. Frankly, that's really American too, isn't it? Because here in the US, we've got this, we're gonna throw off the British. And they're not, we're gonna, if you come here, Brits, we're gonna throw your tea in the, wall, in, the, in the bay. You know, you're not gonna tell us how we're gonna live our lives. And so, well, it's kind of hard to be American, isn't it? And not have this kind of attitude. No one's gonna tell me what to do. In reading this book, I've come across the names of uh, these petty thieves who were shipped off to Australia for their various heinous crimes. And I thought I'd give you just a few examples of how heinous they might be along with some of their names. For example, some people who were sent off to Australia were drag sneaks. Any idea what a drag sneak is? That's somebody who would steal, car, steal from carts and coaches. All right, you go, well, we wouldn't send somebody to prison in a far off country for 14 years for doing that these days. Or a snoozer, and they did what a snoozer is. A snoozer was somebody who would pretend to be asleep at railway stations or in railway hotels in order to steal luggage. 14 years imprisonment in Australia, they would literally whip people. It was common for people to be lashed 250 times a week across their back, their rear end, and their, their, butt, their, um, their, their back of their calves. Okay, or a star glazer. <laughs> we don't have these people anymore. We don't have these kinds of thieves. They cut glass out of shop windows. I guess they'd go sell it then, right? But these days, we don't have any star glazers. Here's an interesting one. Was, I'll say it like, like an Australian would say it, a Sony hunter. Can you say that, a Sony hunter? Okay, who's this is? I don't get this. <laughs> they steal bacon from cheese shops. Now, if you steal it from a meat shop, I guess you're not a Sony hunter. But if you steal it from a cheese shop, you're, you're, you're off to Australia. Good luck on your mate. All right, so a dead lurker. Ah, the, Figure this one out. You steal umbrellas on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> now, if you steal, first of all, why are you stealing umbrellas? I don't get that. And some violent, you know, this heinous crime of stealing umbrellas. Now, if you steal them on a Saturday morning, you're not a dead lurker. I don't get that. By the way, I'll be here this afternoon and in some events and just hold under your umbrellas. That's all I got to say. Okay, a snow gatherer. I like this one. Somebody who steals cleans clothes from hedges. The way they made money was that you would, if you could get somebody else's clothes, you could sell those clothes. So you, no clothes lines, no dryers, and so people would lay their clothes on their hedges, and then somebody would come steal them. We're talking about stealing clothes. A skinner, only a woman could be a skinner. You know what a skinner was? Think this through. Women who enticed sailors to go with them and then strip them of their clothes. And last night somebody go, oh, that's a bit weird, isn't it? I go, if there's not sexuality involved in that. It simply is, I want your clothes because I can sell them. And so I don't know if you steal somebody clothes off of somebody who's not a sailor. I don't know what you're called then. But these were <laughs> ladies, we don't need any of that going on around here these days, okay? So my point in telling you all this is to tell you, I got bad DNA. <laughs> I got bad DNA. I mean, we all know that we have different DNA, all of us, but mine comes from that kind of stock. But the truth be told, if you think about all of us, aren't all of us, I mean, we may not be thieves and we may not get involved in criminal activity, but isn't there a part of us that, that somewhere along the line is a little bit greedy? And there's certainly part of us that all of us would say, no one's gonna tell me what to do. Okay, but what if God tells you what to do? 
What if God says, I want you to do this? What, how's that gonna play out? Are you, how are you gonna respond when God tells you what to do? I asked that question as part of our ongoing plan and development of our project for the next 10 years. It's called 10, you may be familiar with this, that our plan and hope and prayer is that through the next years of First Christian Church's ministry, we'll reach 10% of our community for the cause of Jesus Christ. That we will see 10% of the people of, First, of, of Decatur come to know Jesus Christ. They're not walking with them today. They will within the next 10 years. That's our plan. And my concern is even, that's a huge goal that only God can work out. But that means our church is going to have to go a little bit wider in the, some of the things we do. I get that. But as the pastor, I have a very significant concern that as we go wider, that we make certain we go deeper as well, because I don't want us to spread all our resources and just be shallow. We as a church have to become significantly deeper into who we are as individual Christians. In other words, I don't want to just spread theological information around the community. Instead, can we spread theological information around the information of Jesus Christ for the sake of life transformation in the lives of people throughout all of our community? And so, um, today, I've got to say that, I'll go back to what I've been saying the last few weeks, that if we're going to go this, and we're going to do this, it has to start with us. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today, which is very, very troubling. It's difficult, and you're going to have to put your hats on and do some deep thinking and some deep soul searching, but in order to do that, let's start with us. And so, this really is a passage about us cannonballing, like the kid on the, on the screen, cannonballing into some deeper water, some difficult water, some places where we're going to squirm a little bit. We're going to read from Matthew 23. And where this is taking place is, just as a, a kind of a setup for it, Jesus is speaking, and he's talking to um, a group of religious leaders. The, the Roman army was occupying Israel at the time when Jesus was alive. And they ran a lot of things. And they, they ran the taxation department particularly. But in terms of civil life and religious life, the leaders of the nation of Israel were a group of men called Pharisees. And um, Jesus often was in conflict with them. And we're going to see why today as we read in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. He's having a conversation with them and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And you want to go, this is not a good way to start a conversation. This is not making friends, right? You, want, you don't start a conversation with somebody by saying, woe to you, you hypocrite. It's probably going to be difficult moving on from here. Woe to you, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. If you didn't hear me the first time, I'm coming back around and calling you that same name again, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Oh, lovely. This is really ingratiating himself to these guys, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's holding no punches back. He's coming at him with two fists. Woe to you, blind guides. We'll come back to this business of blindness in just a minute. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. 
But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. And he's basically saying, guys, your rules don't make sense. See, they, the Pharisees had, had gone back through the scriptures of old and they'd codified everything. They'd sent, and they had lists of rules that people had to live by. And it was a case of making sure you checked off every, every rule on the list. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you've got all these rules, but they don't make sense and there's no um, commonality through them. There's no theme through them all. Verse 19, you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears um, by it and for everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Be even-handed in your rules. Make certain they make sense. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. In other words, yeah, you pay attention to what you'd give and you, you're, so, you're so worried about giving a tithe, 10% of your income, that you count it down to the very last, well, to the spices in your cupboard. But you've lost the point of it all. You've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. You should have practiced justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the former, the tithe. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This verse 25 is what we looked at a few weeks ago. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So these are the types of people who were leading the nation of Israel when Jesus was alive. They, um, they were on the one hand put in place, in many ways you could say by the, um, by the Is- Israelites, but on the other hand, the people under them sort of didn't like him either. As a matter of fact, they used to make fun of them and they would have like stand-up comedy in some ways. You could say it this way they would, where they would make jokes about Pharisees like we have stand-up comedians who make fun of our political leaders from time to time or people in the public eye. And there's, there was one joke that really doesn't translate well for us, but you get the sense of, if, if I tell it to you, you'll get the sense of how, well, just how silly things were. The, the joke goes like this. How did the Pharisee get bruised all over? And the answer was, well, he walked around with his eyes closed. And they would all laugh. Now, we don't get it, but here's the background to that story so we understand the joke. That one of the rules was, well, we know this, that a man is not supposed to lust after a woman, not supposed to covet his neighbor's wife, and so forth and so on. It's part of the Ten Commandments. And so the idea was the only way I could not lust after a woman was to walk around with my eyes closed. And so they're making fun that these guys are so worried about the law that they've got their eyes closed, and they're working with the outside of the body instead of the inside of the heart. Does that make sense? That if, if these Pharisees really wanted to follow the law, it wouldn't be a matter of their eyes, it'd be a matter of their hearts changing. <laughs> and, and then Jesus goes on to say, you're, you're so crazy, think about how crazy you are. You, you, you strain a gnat, but swallow a, a camel. In other words, you sit down to dinner at night and you're so worried about what bug might be in your water that uh, you'll look around, but in the meanwhile, you're eating a filthy camel. Uh, it, we don't do that, do we? 
We don't need filthy camels for, for the sake of straining a bug, do we? I mean, does it, does it, surely we don't ever drink a Diet Coke in the hope that that might cancel out the cheeseburger we're, drink, we're eating? along with the fries covered in cheese sauce and bacon bits? Well, I'm drinking a Diet Coke. That's bound to make the, make the rest of the stuff healthy. I never do, I never do that. <laughs> I never have that kind of thought because I wouldn't have bacon bits on my, che- on my cheese fries. <laughs> Here's what the problem was. The code had become more important than the reason for the code. The code was so that people who walked with God would understand what God expected of their lives and the way in which they would live their lives, not whether or not they walked around with their eyes closed. Jesus said, you give money to the letter of the law, counting down to your spices, 10% of your income. You got that, yeah, you got that side worked out, maybe to a fault, and yet you have no generosity when it comes to justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he's saying that somebody who wants to know God and follows after God, and if you're gonna walk after me, you disciples who are listening in, if you're gonna do that, you gotta marry all of life together. Your finances, your stuff at the house, and your attitude toward other people with justice and mercy and faithfulness. Bring it all together. And I was thinking about that this week. You know what this is? Remember this? Here's the church, there's the steeple. Open the doors and there's all the people. And if we're to be the church of Jesus Christ, we gotta do money right and we gotta do faithfulness and justice and mercy and it's gotta be all married together. It's never, you can't, you can't separate the two and that's what the problem with these men were. You think just because you put a little money in the plate that that makes your life right? No, do both. Make certain your life is walking after God in both. And so, I mean, frankly, in our day and age, it seems to me we struggle more so with this hand, don't we, with the money side? And Jesus talked a lot about that. But what Jesus is saying, do it all. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the money side, he talked about money, you could say arguably, more than any other topic in his talks. Jesus and God... God's not so worried about what you do with 10% of your life in the one, I could say that with, you know, he's more worried about what you do with 100% of who you are. Does that make sense? The Lord wants what's best for you and for your life regarding 100% of who we are. And so God wants to lead you in 100% of who you are inside and 100% of your resources and the Bible just doesn't talk about generosity and giving when it comes to money, but it talks about generosity when it comes to all of our lives, yes, including money. It's not that God wants something from you, but God wants something for you, and God particularly wants something for you when it comes to just your life approach, which includes your money and your justice and mercy and grace. And I'm gonna invite you into a story today in this whole thing, particularly on the money side. Um, because, frankly, I don't know that we talk about this very well. You're about to see a video uh, that a young couple has allowed us to get a small glimpse into their lives in an area that usually families would say, this is our private matter and we wouldn't let anybody in on this. But 
with some sensitivity and maturity, I'm asking you to watch what Jeff and Janelle McCollum have got to say about what God has dealt with them in recent years, uh, really about a year ago when this all came to light. And um, please don't use this story incorrectly. We had great debate as to whether or not we should bring this to you because of how private it is and how difficult this might be for you to hear. So listen with sensitive, mature ears, and let's see what Jeff and Janelle discovered in recent months. And growing up, you know, to be fair to my parents, um, I knew they tithed, but I don't believe that, I should say this, I don't remember the uh, issue being pushed that, hey, you need to make sure you give 10% of your income um, to the church or to God. And so as a result, I probably just found myself not doing that. Um, on the other hand, I know Janelle's family, that was something that they were, you know, pushed at a very early age, you know, everything they got. We gave 10%. And so I, I did, not perfect, but I did even growing up as a young adult until we got married and then... I struggled. I'll be it honest. Was it was a struggle. Um, because, I, like I said, I never had made it a priority. I would make excuses. I would make, um, I would, you know, rationalize it. Well, I, you know, I, I'm there at all the services. I come in during the week. We have practices for worship team. And I, I would excuse that and say, well, I'm giving my 10% that way. And um, I kept trying to explain to her. I'm like, no, come on, we're, we're doing it. It's okay. And, and she was like, no, we need to do it financially. And I'm like, I can't. And I would struggle because, you know, I would, you know, we were young. We were, you know, when we were just getting married, you you know, you're combining both incomes together and you're kind of looking at all the expenses and I'm going, there just isn't enough there. I mean, there's just not enough to do that 10%. And if there is, I mean, gracious, we're going to have to give up something. Um, and, and I really struggled with it. I found myself just being drawn to listen to different speakers online um, and different messages. And, and the combination of that, along with some of the series that, that Pastor Wayne and Brian were teaching um, at the time, you know, it just, I really just kept finding this common theme of, obedience to God and I'm going all right God what are you trying to say and as we kind of kept going through it I finally got to the point that I realized that what he was asking us to be obedient in is in our tithe and and I remember coming home and I, I shared with Janelle I said honey I think we need to do it and she goes why I about jumped for joy <laughs> and I said we need to begin tithing and um <clears throat> man the look on her face was, was I, I think the only time I saw a smile that big was the day I proposed to her and asked her to marry yeah. me. Um, because there was that moment of, you know, the waiting was over for her. You know, she had waited uh, for me to get to that point so that it wasn't necessarily that it would be just her doing it, but it would be us as a, as a couple doing it. I can with confidence now say that if you trust and are faithful to God and have a heart that's obedient to him, he will take care of you. It always, it, I was always taught to do it. It was always something you were supposed to do. But now that we have that heart together, it means so much more than just writing a check. Yeah. So, um, a little bit of awkwardness to hear a couple talk about that, right? Because it's just a little bit too close to home. Um, but there's a, there's a couple saying, we as a, as a couple with, with our daughter, we're going to figure out how to do this. Um, that's really important. Uh, let me explain it this way. Uh, it's 100% of who we are 
is going to be devoted to God. And we've got baby dedications scheduled for uh, an event this afternoon. I want you to see some of the photos of the babies that are going to be dedicated there. Really, isn't that cool? There's, there's two slides with you know a bunch of little ones that have been born in the last six months or so that we're going to dedicate. And I can hardly wait for it all. It's really cool. But really that event that's scheduled this afternoon is more so not just for the children, but it's more so for parents who've gone through homework with us to um, say, we are committing to raising our children to know all that they need to know about God, that they were going to have a God viewpoint lifestyle. And it became very apparent to me how deeply I feel this this past week. You're aware that we are in the process of interviewing some candidates for some new pastoral positions we have. And so this week, we're having a conversation with one of those potential young men in this case. And in the context of the interview, he said, I want to ask you about my kids. And suddenly I got really emotional. And I I couldn't quite figure out what's going on. And I, I said to this effect, you need to know children are incredibly important in the life of this church. That we, in many ways, orient much of what we do to what's going on in the lives of children. And we have a whole approach to that. And as pastor with my own kids growing up in the church, most important thing for me was that the church wouldn't interfere with my children's growth and spirituality, and it would only add to them knowing Jesus Christ and wanting to serve him all the days of their lives. And that's our approach. And suddenly it occurred to me, what is it? We want our kids to know about this stuff. We want our kids to know that they are made in the image of God. And you know what? I don't want that only for kids, but I want it for you. I want to be certain that all of us as adults in the room that we know about all this stuff, this 100%, this giving of all who we are, and this fact that we're made in God's image. You know, we're made in God's image, and if you think about it, if we're made in God's image, then I've got really good news for you. God is a really generous God in every area. Think of creation. Think of the way in which we can love and receive love. God, we're mirrored in that, that. We mirror that in us. If we mirror that from God and we have wonderful experiences about life and laughter and you can kind of see all these different things that God has done until you get all the way to John three sixteen, where we read that God loved the world so much that he did what? He gave. This generous God gave us his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. You do know that from John 3, 16, don't you? If you're here today and you don't understand that, don't leave this room without knowing that Jesus Christ came and died for you and the generosity of God is poured all over you. And if I'm made in the image of God, then here's some really good news. That's the basis of my DNA. It may be messed up by sin, but you know, reality is, I'm not from bad stock after all. You're not from bad stock. Oh, I've got the business nobody's going to tell me to do. That's laying there somewhere and it raises its ugly head from now and then. But in reality, you get down to who I am at the bottom of who I am. I'm made in God's image. And if I can get sin out of the way and my own stuff out of the way, then I can reflect God's generosity. See, here's the deal. The Pharisees had lost their focus. They'd lost the fact that God's image was in each human being around them and that that God was calling them to act with justice and mercy. They had tithing down, but they'd forgotten justice and mercy. It would appear to me that in our generation, in our time, we've got it reversed. We we, We figured out how to do justice and mercy, at least we 
spend a lot of time on it, that we make certain everybody gets a fair shot at it, and you, you, you know, everybody gets a decent education, and that there are fair trials, and you know, we have all this understanding of individual rights, and fair enough. But now we've, we've flipped it around, and we've, aren't we not like, like the Pharisees who say, I got justice and mercy and faithfulness figured out. Don't talk to me about my tithing. Are we any better? When Jesus called them hypocrites, that language is that they were acting out their faith. A hypocrite in that day, as he was talking about, they understood what he was saying. A hypocrite was a stage actor who came on and played a part, but when they got off stage, they lived a completely different life. We need to marry it all together, friends, a matter of faithfulness and trust in God, along with, frankly, a little bit of common sense. You want a little bit of common sense when it comes to this whole business of generosity? How are you, how are you gonna be better off? You being in charge of 100% of who you are and what you have, or God saying, I'll take care of the 90% after you give 10%. You either have your 90% blessed or you have your 100% cursed. That's what scripture says. I hate to tell you that. Well, scripture says it in Malachi. It says that you can rob God and thus be cursed, or you can give to God and thus be blessed. I don't know about you, but I think God's a whole lot better. I'm a whole lot better off if I get God engaged in all of who I am. Isn't it all about, again, it's not theological understanding, but life transformation. It's about us coming to the place where we, we have such a deep relationship with God that when we feel this tug at the bottom of our bellies about, well, you gotta fix this, that our immediate response is to obedience. Kind of what Jeff McCollum was saying. It came down to obedience. I need to tell you, in all honesty, this whole business, I could say it's, this is all about a deeper discipleship for you. It's not about money for the church. I could say that, but I wanna tell you, that's, you're sitting there going, yeah, right, Wayne. It is all about deeper discipleship, but I want to tell you, of course your discipleship impacts the church. But if you become a better disciple through deeper prayer, that impacts the church, right? If you become a better disciple through serving, that impacts the church. If you become a better disciple through kindness, that impacts the church. If you become a better disciple through bringing up the name of Jesus Christ in those settings where his name isn't known, that impacts the church. If you become a better giver, that impacts the church. It's all there. It's us saying we're gonna marry the whole stuff together. And it's awkward and it's, it's weird and it's difficult. But if you want shallow teaching, if you want shallow lives, then Christian walk is, walking isn't for you, I gotta tell you. I got some ways to at least help you think about this when you go home. It's in your bulletin, in your program. Would you pull it out? I'm being candid with you today, friends. And I, I, we almost, we had great debate as to whether or not to put this in, the offer, in, in your bulletin today and even bring this up because I don't want to confuse this with the message. But if you're thinking, okay, I got to go home and give some thought and we've got to have some talking about where we stand in justice, mercy, and faithfulness and in our tithe, then I want to give you some tools. Our Beyond Capital campaign is coming to an end in December and I want to thank you for the way in which this congregation has given a ton of money. We're at a million dollars that you guys have given in, in the past three years to the, to the building program and our ministries. And we'll, have, we'll, we'll look at a new campaign probably on the other side of Easter and figure that out. But in the meanwhile, the needs of the church go on and the ministry endeavors and opportunities of the church go on as part of our understanding of how to reach this community in new ways. We are right now in the process of doubling the amount of space that's available for children. 
We're putting a second floor in, the, in what was known as the student center. That's what the gym, as it is right now, our, our gym on the, on, the, on the south end of the building, is gonna look like within the next few months. Two floors, all kinds of cool stuff over there. We need to get behind that. That's part of what we're doing as a congregation. We wanna reach more families for the sake of Jesus Christ. We also wanna reach into our area of the GM Square Block where we've been working for the last three or four years and we've got a very unusual and daring and risky adventure in front of us. Namely, we've put a bid on a house down there. It's a two-story house and the plan at this point is to be very intentional and Pastor BJ and Mary and the girls are gonna move into the neighborhood. They're gonna live on the second floor of that home and have their lives there, and the bottom floor is gonna be a ministry center. And we're sending them there as part of our church as intentional ministry, intentional missionaries, if you will, to a culture that is not like ours, with the intent of that we could raise up a church right there in that, in that house. And, we can, and we, I want you to get behind this. And so I would suggest, if this whole business is kind of messing with your head, Okay, then let it mess with your head, let it mess with your heart. And if you're looking for a way to give some thought to how to pull it all together, maybe this is it. We're gonna take a special offering in the second week of, of December. I'll bring this up again in the next couple of weeks again and kind of just keeping you in front of you, but new children's spaces, room for more, if you will, reach more people in the block. And um, so give it some thought, give it some prayer. I know it's hard. Maybe, I, mean, I had an experience this week that maybe explains how hard it is. You know that um, in, in September of last year, 2013, uh, Leslie's parents, my in-laws, had a crisis develop in their home in North Carolina. Long story short. We went out in a rush. And when I arrived, Leslie went out a few days before me and then I raced out there to catch up with them. And when I arrived, the first thing that dad said to me as I walked into the room, eight o'clock one morning, he said, uh, Wayne, we can't live by ourselves anymore. We need you to sell the house. We're moving to Decatur. You need to take care of us. <sighs> Talk about heavy, right? So in the next few months, by the end of December, we'd sold the house. They'd moved to Decatur. We had there have a wonderful apartment down in an assisted living space down at Imboden Gardens. It's a beautiful spot. Everything was wonderful. Um, but in August, dad fell and broke his hip. We got a call 10 after 11 at night. It was dad on the phone, on the floor. I've broken my hip, I can tell I'm on the floor. Uh, okay, uh, we'll call the ambulance. And so that began this kind of thing. You've, those of you who've worked with elderly parents, you know what it's like. And um, we got the hip repaired. Mom and dad moved into a nursing home together to be together. Dad went through therapy and all sorts of stuff. Then he developed a, a, a bed sore on the bottom of his heel, which frankly became more problematic than even the hip. And so they had to spend extra time there and um, great debate. What, we're paying for four beds, two beds in a nursing home a full apartment, you, know, you can imagine, it's like pretty tense, pretty, and so long story short, uh, not this past week, but the week before, the medical staff said they can move home. And so Monday they moved home. Here's what happened, all right? They had a room in the nursing home way down the end of one hallway. And as they came down that hallway, they're both on walkers, okay? Came to the big living room area where there's all kinds of stuff going on there and all the patients are. And then they had to walk down another hallway, uh, about 150 to 200, it's a long hallway. And they're on walkers. You, can you see the scene? <laughs> they're on walkers going down that hallway and the staff and patients had lined that hallway 
and were applauding as they left. Dad has been very emotional telling the story over and over again. And so, um, you know, it, it's us doing life like you do life. There are times when you have to be brave. There are times when you have to be tenacious. There are times when you have to be risky. There were, there were points when we were scared for them. I'd say there are still points when we're scared for us. Does that make sense? But he told the story so often. He was so emotional every time he told it. I suddenly thought, I got to capture this. So on Friday night, I said, Dad, tell me the story again. And I captured it on my cell phone. And I want you to see 30 seconds of Dad talking about this experience. And it's going to look a little bit weird because you're going from a cell phone to screens that big. So it's not going to be real. It's pretty raw. But in fact, I like the rawness of it because this is life. This is, I mean, life is raw. Life is doing this. You know what I mean? So watch the screen and we'll come back and close this down. When we left the other facility, there was 60, 70 people lined up. It was the CNAs, the nurses, and friends. And they were on each side of the hall applauding and uh, <clears throat> going out. Over half of them went over and hugged Sarah's neck and cried. Yeah? And did they talk to you? Uh, yeah, but very few of them cried. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my point. Here's my point. You know what? This whole business we're talking about today, this, it's kind of like dad and mom. We're on walkers and we're, we're, we're clawing for every step we can get, right? Isn't that life sometimes? Man, can I just get the next step? Can I shuffle... Listen, folks, friends, beloved, work this out in your life. Work this out. And if you're doing this to get there, that's okay. Because all of heaven is doing this. All of heaven is doing this for you this week. Take it in. Let God work. Brian's going to lead us through communion.